Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I'm joined by Libertarian Christian Institute CEO Doug Stewart and Digital Marketing Coordinator Carrie Baldwin. The Libertarian Christian Institute is a federal 501c3 tax-exempt educational and religious nonprofit organization that promotes libertarianism from a Christian point of view. They are convinced that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. LCI is ecumenical in nature, welcoming all those who confess the traditional creeds of the universal church. And today we're here to discuss a book that Doug and Carrie co-wrote with two other members of the Institute. It's called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. So Doug and Carrie, welcome to you both. Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. I got a chance to go through your book over the weekend, and it's very interesting. It's brief, it's to the point, and rather than going on and on, as some of us writers tend to do at our not best moments, you guys get right to the point. Here's a question that comes up time and again, and here's our answer to it. It's a great format. So I wanted to pick a few things out that you address in the book and just get your take on it. And I guess if we're going to talk about Christianity and libertarianism, maybe I'll hit you with what to me seems like a hard one, but I have a feeling that you've got an answer to this. And that is that in the famous eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth passage where Jesus says you should turn the other cheek. I want to read the whole passage because a lot of people only are familiar with the turn the other cheek part of it. This is how it goes. It says, ye have heard, and I'm using the King James version, so forgive the these and the thous. I think most people are most familiar with that. But it says, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but Whosoever shall smite thee on thy turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. 
So the reason I want to read the whole thing is he doesn't just say, turn the other cheek. He seems to deal with the holy triumvirate and libertarianism of life, liberty, and property, and says you shouldn't defend any of them, that instead you should just allow people to violate all three. What say you to that argument? Well, I'm still processing go with him twain because I haven't heard that uh, quoted in the King James in quite a while. So I'm laughing internally that that, that language. I think that means twice. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, no, I think go with him too. <laughs> I think it's the idea there. It's interesting that there are a number of things that the Bible can be used to do. And I think that if we go to that passage and say, well, Jesus says that uh, everybody should just ab abandon the idea of defending their property or their pursuit of happiness and things like that, that I think they're missing the point that Jesus is making there. When you take things out of context, of course, you can see that there's life, liberty, property there. Ah, Jesus says you shouldn't care about it. Okay, fine. You could say that, but in what situations shouldn't we care about it? In every situation? Because that doesn't seem like people would want to apply that at all, because at that point, we would have no boundaries whatsoever with people. We could just say, hey, you need to let me have what you have. And other people would be like, oh, yep, that's right. Jesus told me I shouldn't care about my property. Like, no furthest leftist person would do that, unless you're just like a really hardcore literal communist, like communitarian. Well, um, unless you're, so, yeah. and you're not running the party because they, they don't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Carrie, I'm sure you might have some additional thoughts. Yeah, I would have to look at the whole passage in order to really get the context, but I suspect here that what Jesus is talking about is how to love your neighbor, but loving your neighbor doesn't mean being a doormat. If we were to say, oh, a guy on the street who wants to demand sex for me, I'm just supposed to give it to him because Jesus said that's how I love my neighbor. No Christian would agree with that. So there's there's clearly some context that needs to be had here. Um, and without doing a thorough review of the passage, I, I can't speak to it any more We're than that. We're not going to exit, Gina. So. <laughs> well, and I think what I would also add to that is that there are other options between mandated behavior and prohibited behavior, which is, of course, voluntary behavior. And I think one of the themes I got from your book over and over was that, that Jesus asks us to do some things voluntarily that we don't necessarily have a right to compel others to do. So that's the way I've always read it. I was interested to see what, what your take was on it. Another thing that I was just reading this other part of your book, and I was thinking the whole time, Brave New World, and then there it was in your book, and this is related, it says, isn't Christianity about selflessness while libertarianism is about selfishness? And I think you've touched on that, but what else should we know from the book? Yeah, the reason that question is in there is that I repeatedly get pushback from my sort of left-leaning friends who are Christians who talk about it's just based on greed or selfishness. And greed is catch-all bad term for like where capitalism is, but when they say there's a libertarian philosophy because it's individualistic, it's based in methodological individualism, that is a sort of carte blanche permission for people to simply be selfish. And so that's why they say it's a built on selfishness. And then when you get into the economic explanation or just maybe human explanation of the difference between self-interest 
and selfishness, they say there's a distinction without a difference. And they say, oh, you're just covering it up or you're just trying to obfuscate whether or not we're actually being selfish and that people shouldn't be pursuing self-interest because that's pretty much the same as selfishness. And one, one way to put that is that you could say that we're stale to say it this way, but like we're goal maximizing automatons. I mean, we're more than that, but that is what we do. We have goals and we try to achieve those goals. And individuals are the agents that actually end up being, there's no, in a sort of proper sense, group decision-making. There's individuals making um, decisions in that group. So insofar as people think that libertarianism is about selfishness, I could wrap my head around the idea that there are libertarians who want to be libertarians because they want to be left alone and they have their own thing. They are selfish. So maybe there's that. There's also, is it Ayn Rand who wrote The Virtue of Selfishness? And so that's a popular book. And in some sense. And so it creates the stigma that adds to this sort of possible disparity. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, there's this inherent idea that there is love for oneself. How can I know what that looks like if I don't know what it looks like to love myself? And there is a point to which you can love yourself too. Donald Trump might be the obvious example here. This guy's all about himself. And we know that's actually not what libertarianism is about. It's certainly not what Christianity is about. That's not really what this really is. It's really a sort of an easy excuse to pick it language and uh, maybe pick on a few bad apples to pin libertarianism on self Carry what you just said earlier about the true ramifications of complete selflessness. And in Brave New World, they do have an arrangement where everybody belongs to everybody and you're supposed to just sleep with whoever <laughs> asks you to. <laughs> but there's even more than that. What, what more does the book show about taking complete selflessness to its logical conclusion? The logical conclusion of that is that anything that Christians hold dear becomes obsolete. So monogamy becomes obsolete. Marriage becomes obsolete. Genuine love for your neighbor becomes obsolete. And any sense that you are an individual becomes obsolete. And I would even say that part of this criticism comes from Christians who tend to argue against libertarianism based on what they know of people like Ayn Rand, which is wholly ironic because Ayn Rand was not a libertarian. She spoke against libertarianism. She hated us. She, Yeah. It's a little disingenuous for Christians to criticize libertarianism on the basis of Ayn Rand, but even her ideas on selfishness are nuanced. The other issue that I would say comes up with this criticism is that they don't understand what methodological ind individualism is. They think atomistic individualism, which is the idea that we're all self-sufficient and our own private islands and we don't need anybody else. And I don't know a single libertarian thinker who believes that. In fact, Murray Rothbard has wrote against that idea. When we say we're methodological individualists, we're simply saying that it's the individual who acts, it's not groups who act. But we also recognize that we need each other. We can't actually be entirely self-sustaining. This is why we have economic concepts like the division of labor and, and so forth. But to take it back to your to the, the Brave New World issue, what's interesting about Brave New World is that they still have to create their caste system. They still have to have a division of labor. They still have to have all of these things. It's just you know predetermined by somebody who's trying to centrally plan the whole bit. And when you get Christians who are who want to 
talk about how we live in community and we're supposed to love each other and be servants to one another. This is all true, but those things are voluntary. They're necessarily voluntary, and it is not at the cost of the of the individual's own dignity. So I think Doug is when it's when scripture says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's um, an implicit command for us to to love ourselves as well. Let's take a short break for this important message. Most people consider it a fact of life that prices are going to go up over time, and they've never gone up as fast as they are right now. But what if I told you it wasn't always like that? That for over 100 years, prices went down in America, even as the economy became more productive? Well, it's true. And as much as we like to blame the president when the economy is bad, presidents really have very little effect on our modern economy. The real culprit behind not only price inflation, but the constant booms and busts we suffer is the Federal Reserve System. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop focusing on things that don't make a difference and start focusing on what does. Whether you're worried about constantly rising prices, wage stagnation, increasing wealth and income inequality, or the massive expansion of the government's size and power, they can all be traced back to an institution the powerful would prefer you ignored. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com and find out what you should really be fighting against. And now, back to our episode. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical. I'm glad you brought up Ayn Rand. I don't know where this comes from if they train progressives that when they hear the word libertarian, they're just supposed to say Ayn Rand, but it's true that you make two good points. Number one, she wasn't a libertarian. She didn't like us very much, but they don't even get her right. Even what she says about these things is more nuanced than what they tell. I'll tell you, I think I know exactly where they get it from because when I took my philosophy degree, one of the classes I took was political philosophy and the people that they bring up when they talk about libertarianism are are Robert Nozick and Ayn Rand. From a, a public state school education perspective, that's where they're getting the ideas from. I, I don't mean to be uh, rude here, but that sounds like a boomer made that syllabus. Seriously, I know roughly when you went to school, what decade you went to school, but like even then there was better libertarian voices since. Yeah. I was born in 65, by the way, so not a boomer, barely, <laughs> but you know. Um, yeah, I wasn't impugning you. <laughs> So let's talk about bureaucracy for a minute and regulation, because you say libertarians prefer markets to bureaucracy, but doesn't a laissez-faire market operate on the principle of greed, one of the seven deadly sins, and however imperfect, doesn't regulating some of that at least make it a little more Christian? You can assume that there's greed in a market, and I think that's a fair assumption, right? People have greed right? People want more money, even for good reasons. I want more money because I need more money. I want to provide something for my kids. I want to save more for my kids so they can go to a nicer school than I was able to go to. Those are consumptive 
purposes in the sense that aren't really greed. When people want to attribute greed in a situation, they are attributing motive and attributing like a whole lot more than just people's goodwill efforts to make a, an honest living. And I think even most people don't even care if people become maybe like entry level millionaires because you know, they ran a business for 20 years and that business just ended up being profitable over the course of 20 years and they've got a million or two in the bank or whatever. I don't think people begrudge that level of pursuit of profit. But the idea that people pursuing profit are simply greedy is just, it's almost, it's a little bit of an ad hominem, but what they want to do is they want to make it into a systemic attack. So they want to say capitalism is based on greed or a laissez-faire market is based on greed. At best, it, you could say that, well, because of greed, we need to make sure that whatever system we have in place, it incentivizes people to not just take from each other, but to offer, to counteract that by saying, I'm going to serve you. So I'm going to build you a website if you pay me this amount of money. And if, and then someone else is going to say, I'm going to build you an addition on your house because you pay me this amount of money. And so that becomes the method by which we determine that we're, that we're, sorry, I lost my sentence structure there. That, that just becomes the method by which we are making decisions. I don't know. I don't think of people as greedy in that sort of way. Now, people are greedy, but what can keep that in check is an open market. If you don't have an open market, you can actually just institutionalize greed, which is essentially what the government is anyway. Do you remember the quote when someone asked one of the Rockefellers, how much is enough? And he was like, just a little bit more. And he was mocking the fact that people who are really wealthy, he was like, well, all we want is a little bit more. And, and I have a leftist friend who often says this about people who are like the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the world. And I said to him one time about, actually it was right around Christmas, that I said, how much more revenue does the federal government want? The leftists want the federal government to have, well, just a little bit more. And like he knew what I was doing and he was like, oh, good grief. If you want a system based on greed, it's people who have no consequence for being too greedy and driving themselves out of business or, or whatever. I would also add to that, it's the role of the consumer to regulate the market. That's what our job is. When we find good products, we vote for those products by buying them. And when we find bad products, we vote against those products by not buying them. So it's our job as consumers to regulate the market. And if you want to talk about greed, it's the idea that there should be a small group of people in government who gets the sole right and responsibility to regulate the market. So if we're going to talk about who's greedy, the, the reality is it's the monopolization of regulation that is greedy, not allowing us to do our job and regulate it ourselves. I'm going to add one more thing there. It should be said that not just the consumer is the sort of regulator by the buying or not buying and so forth. That creates in and of itself a market or a market can be created for whether or not that product should be bought because you may not buy it again, but it just might not be for you, but it could be really good for me. And so where do we get that kind of information? You get information like that on Yelp, reviews, all that kind of stuff, which is made possible. With, with things like that, you have the ability for more markets to emerge that actually solve the problem in a decentralized way that the government it just can't do. I guess in some ways you could justify like, oh, if it's highly damaging or whatever, but even then it's not going to be as effective as a market. I'll direct this one to you, Carrie, and then Doug jump in afterwards. But Christianity sets all sorts of limits on conduct that libertarian doesn't. And for example, libertarians would legalize prostitution. So how do you reconcile a libertarian world with a Christian world, seeing as the libertarians would allow all sorts of things that Jesus would forbid. So this question comes up frequently because obviously 
prostitution or more broadly speaking, extramarital sex is considered immoral by Christian standards. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. Libertarian philosophy is strictly speaking a legal philosophy. It is asking the question, what should be considered criminal? Or more specifically, what are we going to allow the use of uh, the legitimate use of violence in order to stop? And so we have the non-aggression principle and the principle of self-ownership in, in order to help us identify what actually constitutes crime. And when it comes down to it, there are a lot of moral problems, moral behaviors that we would call vices, things like prostitution, drug addiction, those sorts of things that don't actually constitute crime. They're not an initiation of violence against somebody else. Why would a Christian want to legalize prostitution? It is the best opportunity to get women out of those situations. Most women are either trafficked into it or feel like they've got no other option to in order to provide for themselves. So poverty. So by by decriminalizing prostitution, we actually give women an opportunity to get out of these situations. One problem that prostitutes frequently run into is that they are themselves exploited by the criminal justice system in the name of getting more pimps out there off the streets and things like that. So you have police departments who who have allowed police officers to, to lie to a prostitute to so that he can have sex with her and then arrest her after the fact, and then drag her into, uh, well, we'll let you off the hook if you show us where the other prostitutes are, tell us who your pimp is, and things like that. And all this is exploitive of women. There's nothing about the way our criminal justice system handles this problem that's Christian. And so from a Christian perspective, we should also be asking, is the enforcement actually legitimate? If we want women to not be in these situations, what's the most effective way of getting them out of those situations? And we would decriminalizing it is a good first step. So we have other motivations, like we wouldn't condone pro prostitution. There's certainly those prostitutes who choose to go into the, it as a profession. And at the very least, they should have legal protections. If they're going to choose to do it, they shouldn't be just cast aside because they're choosing to do something that we don't morally condone. Anything to add on that, Doug? Because I have another kind of a follow-up that's related. No, nah, I'm good. <laughs> that was well said. I, I was, that was yeah. pretty thorough. That was yeah, good. I, I couldn't think of anything <laughs> she left out. So the, the other thing that I was going to ask, and it's almost like it comes up hand in glove, is that people usually say prostitution and drugs. But, and this is my own question. I reread the whole New Testament every once in a while, and I just don't see anywhere in there that Jesus or Paul or any of the apostles afterwards are prohibiting drugs. Isn't it just an issue that's not addressed in there or am I missing something? I would say that what's spoken about in scripture is that you're not supposed to, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm forgetting the passage, but you're basically not supposed to poison your own body. And there are certainly drugs that are a poison to your body. Methamphetamines would be a perfect example. Actually, what's interesting, what I was going to bring up is that since you mentioned that it's frequent that prostitution and drug addiction are mentioned together. Um, one thing that I've recently learned in a documentary called The Wisdom of Trauma is that drug, both drug addiction, sex addiction vis-a-vis -vis prostitution are traumatic imprints. They are expression, like they're manifestations of trauma from usually from your childhood. And so these really are health 
issues. Yes, they're immoral, but I think that there's good reason for Christians to actually explore the possibility that the reason why people seek after these sorts of addictions is to try to cope with a very traumatic reality that they've been through. In which case, our call as Christians is to love them, be compassionate, and give them help instead of throwing them in prison and throwing away the key. I think the reason that people link them together, and you make a good point about another reason why we should think about them together, but I would also put gambling in there that these are considered vices that polite society frowns upon, but they're not really crimes with victims other than maybe the prostitutes are victimized by the criminal enterprise that they're forced to participate in. But again, you're free to not do those things, even if they're legal. And I think that seems to me like the essence when I read a passage like, no one comes to the Father except through me, that you're making a choice. You have a chance to go get high and do whatever you're going to do, but you just choose not to do it. So, uh, of course, that's not inconsistent with Christianity. The The problem is, Tom, that Christians don't like it when other people don't choose their way of life. And it and there is this impulse to engage in whatever means necessary to get people to behave in a certain way. I don't know. It, it feels to me like, and this has been true of all kinds of people, not just Christians. So I'm not only throwing you know, Christians on the bus here, but like we, we want to be moral busybodies and we want to make sure that other people are in line in a certain way. If you're going to make the case for some sort of system of society or governance that will... Uh, sort of protect others and keep others from being harmed. Of the three of those things, most of the things are about self-harm, right? Like prostitution and drugs. The other is gambling, which is ostensibly this idea that some organizations can, uh, I can't think of the word, press is the class, the next word, take advantage of and exploit others for financial gain. And, and in which case, in our society, basically state governments get to decide where that's allowed to happen. So at least they're allowing it in some sort of approved way. But yeah, I think a lot of Christian, the, the Christian impulse is that if there is something that's immoral, then we should somehow in some way together decide that this is also immoral for people to do, even if they don't quite agree with whether or not it's immoral. So yeah. So there is a commandment, go and teach all nations. In other words, tell them what's right and wrong and how to save their souls. How do you distinguish between following that the way it was intended by Jesus and being a moral busybody? Well, it certainly didn't say go and conquer all nations. Okay, that didn't come until a few centuries later, and then we realized that this is that that the state realized we can use this for uh, our purposes and force law and, and and coerce and all of this. Now that they weren't doing that already, a couple things come to mind, and I'll let Carrie chime in too, which is that the first thing we need to do is keep our own house in order, be the most improved unit, as our friend Norman often says, and I think he got it from somewhere else, but he's like, just be the most improved unit. So whatever it is that you have the power to do, to live out and teach and preach the gospel and to demonstrate a life of freedom, do that and teach others how to do that. And so one thing that we like to do at the Libertarian Christian Institute is give people not just an intellectual reason for being a libertarian, but also help them think, what does that actually look like there? Especially during the pandemic, it's been very dicey. Um, you know, even between Carrie and me, we disagree on a few, on a handful of like individual behaviors as to whether or not you should get vaccinated or mask or where you should mask and when you should and how you should interact with those people. What does it look like to be loving to your neighbor in these situations? And so there's all kinds of conversation about that. Yeah. Part of really, honestly, I think that it comes down to living out 
the gospel while you preach it in the sense that there is good news. There's just the announcement that Jesus is Lord. There's another way of living. And it is literally the opposite of Caesar. Read the book and you'll understand where I'm going with that. And I'll let Carrie keep going here. I'll just add that scripture says that there's the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it also says that God's perfect law could not make us obey those two commands. We cannot fulfill those two commands with God's law. And yet human beings have this idea that man's law can help us fulfill those two commands. So you have conservatives who try to get people to love God via their abandoning their moral vices using the man's law in order to make that happen. Liberals do the same thing as far as loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why they're more social. And if God can't make us fulfill those commands, man's law isn't going to make us do that either. The whole point of the Christian message of the gospel is that Christ does that for us. It's not us that bootstraps the whole thing. It's Christ. It points to Christ. Though we should absolutely teach all nations, Part of that is teaching them that Christ is the one who fulfills the law, not us. And we cannot use man's law in order to coerce behavior that God's law doesn't achieve. I know you guys have limited time. I just want to ask you one more thing. And of course, this is a big issue in our times among even libertarians, whether they're Christian or not. And that's the immigration question, which some libertarians would argue outside of a Christian perspective that... You have to have open borders because you can only ban people from property you personally own. And then the other side says, no, this publicly owned land is ultimately owned by some individuals, however badly it's being administrated by the state, and therefore you can exclude people. How do you approach this from a Christian perspective? If I were a one-issue voter, this would be my issue because I learned about, I don't know, maybe a decade ago that if we had actual open borders, we would probably eliminate poverty within a decade. Now, we're very much on track with free markets to do that anyway, uh, but there are a lot of people stuck in places that the state is keeping them in because the state says, no, nah, you can't just, you can't cross this line over here. It, in this current situation of the world, and I don't mean the pandemic, I just mean just the state of affairs we find ourselves in this century, I can understand why there are borders and that why there are places, demarcations of nationalities and, and all that. However, I believe that just like we as Americans have a sense of belonging as a single nation, and yet I can cross over the border from Pennsylvania into Maryland, into New York, into all the other states that surround Pennsylvania, and I can keep going, and I can keep going, and I can keep going, and nobody on the other side of the border says, hey, where's your papers? Can you please tell me why you are coming to this state? There has been an agreement for nearly 250 years that we are allowed to keep crossing these borders without any sort of hostility or questioning. Now, obviously, there's some few exceptions there with the federal criminal stuff. But outside of that, that's been the history of our country. And I think it's worked out pretty well for us. And so from a Christian perspective, the only there, there's no... Um, I would say there's really no place in the scripture where we can say, hey, borders are a good thing. What we do get from scripture is God constantly reminding 
the Israelites and constantly reminding his people that they were once slaves in Egypt, that he is their God, that they need to treat foreigners well. Like the heart of God, as we read the Old Testament especially, is very much pro-immigrant, pro-alien. That's actually a really good word, I think. I know we use the word alien differently nowadays, but that, that word of that strange person in your midst to treat them hospitably is actually really important. One of the reasons cited in one of the later prophets, that one of the reasons for Sodom and Gomorrah's demise, among another is is that they were not hospitable and then we find that in one of the later prophets so there's this there's this attitude about that christians ought to have toward those who are immigrants to their land and again i know that we're not a christian nation so it's not like christians own this land and we need to be hospitable but that should be the attitude that christians should have so it should be christians who are the ones saying okay fine we need some sort of process for border enforcement but there but we need to make it easy because we need to be a welcoming nation we need to be a welcoming people we need to open up the gates so that people can come and pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And I was going to say life, liberty, and property, and I feel like I got the phrase wrong. So that should be our attitude, is that we need to have an open and uh, open arms. It's also a very American attitude to have. It's really crazy to me that the origin story of America, despite some of its downsides, d despite some of the egre egregious things that we've done, that our ancestors have done in this country, has been that people are welcome to come here and also welcome to leave. So I know the IRS follows you if you leave, but <laughs> you know, outside of that, you're literally free to leave. So I think, yeah, from a Christian perspective, I think it's really an attitude thing because I'm not sure there's something in the Bible that says this is the right policy. So anyway, I'll stop there. I live in a border state in New Mexico, and I also live in a sanctuary city. And so it's quite normal for us to have migrant workers come and come up here. And I think that number one, there's a stigma that's associated with immigration that shouldn't exist because I've met these people and they're they're some of the greatest people with the greatest work ethic and they just want to provide for their families. And I don't see how that's a problem. Number two, though, is the actual immigration process that we have is completely unfriendly. Like it's one thing to say, yes, we welcome immigrants, just go through the process, but it's another thing for them to actually go through the process. We, I know a couple that immigrated from Egypt, they were Coptic Christians. They wanted to get out of that situation. They came here to America and the system is such that it requires them to get on welfare. It requires them to get on all of these, these programs and become dependent upon the state. And the criticism from conservatives that are, when immigrants get here, they just siphon off our tax dollars. But yeah, the system's set up that way. Nothing says that if immigrants come here, they're automatic, you know, that they want to go on that system. In fact, I know this couple said they didn't want to go on that system. They both had college degrees and had something to contribute to society and they weren't allowed to use those those skills and talents that they had to get on they had to get on to these welfare programs when they got over. Can you break that down a little bit just so I had no idea about this until you just said it. So if they're coming over here and they have let's say jobs lined up or one of them has a job lined up, why do they have to go on a, a welfare program? That's a great question. I asked her that. She, so she had a, or has a degree in, as a pharmacy technician. I think she finally got her doctorate in, in pharmacy here, but she wanted to get a job as a pharmacy technician. She needed to get licensing though. And the licensing was such that they wouldn't recognize her education from Egypt. 
And that was one piece of the puzzle. But another piece of the puzzle was that, that they had a requirement, like they were told, you're going to have to go on these welfare programs in order to get through the system. And I distinctly remember her telling me they didn't want to get on it. They wanted to just come over here. And I forget what degree her husband had. I think he, he eventually became uh, a, a translator. They had marketable skills. They could have gotten jobs very easily, but they weren't allowed to because of all the government processes that are in place. And there's more to it. It's not just those two processes. It's very convoluted. You're taking me back because in a previous life that I almost forgot about. For a while, I was a physician recruiter. So literally a headhunter for doctors. And I placed some that were educated in the United States, but I placed a fair number of, they used to call them foreign medical graduates. I was around in that business right when they changed the term to international medical graduates because the word foreign suddenly became a naughty word. It, like, like you say, Doug, alien is now a bad word, but when you go back to 1798, when Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were writing their treatises against the Alien Sedition Acts, they referred to them as alien friends. This was not a negative word. It was just meant from another country. But anyway, I remember that they weren't forced to get on any kind of a welfare program, but there were all kinds of hoops to get, let's say, a doctor, even educated in Germany, much less in India, to take a job in the U.S. Now, this is someone who's got a residency and has actually been living in the country for usually about three years because what would happen is they'd graduate from a foreign medical school and then they would come here and do a residency in the United States for two to three years. So they've been here for three years and then they still have to go through all of this screening. Now, we're talking about a medical doctor who's treated thousands of patients by then in this country, hasn't knocked over a liquor store <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> and I think we could just let them go ahead and start working and paying a lot of taxes, by the way. So anyway, some of the arguments against it are a little silly for sure. So interesting take. Why don't we leave it there? Because there's a lot more in the book, folks. It's called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christians Answers to Tough Questions. And I'm going to put a link to the book on the show notes page. There's a lot more in it. It handles, I, I don't know if I want to say hundreds, but it seems like over a hundred or a lot anyway. 100, 102 questions. Okay. 102 questions. There it is that I'm sure that whether you're a Christian or not, or just wonder how Christians would handle these things from a libertarian perspective, really good answers here. And I want to thank you both for spending time with me. Thanks for yeah, thanks, us. Tom. Hey, if any of your listeners want to go to uh, libertarianchristians.com and they want to download the audio book on our site, they can use the promo code MULLIN50 and they'll get 50% off. Great. Okay. We'll definitely have that link there too. Talk to you soon, guys. And thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed, Stupid at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to tommullentalksfreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.